Good morning. How is everyone today? My name's Jordan, and I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary, and it is great to be here with you this morning. I'm not going to lie to you. I am a tad tired, and I'll explain in a moment, but not as tired as my wife is, and all the moms said amen, right? Uh, but this morning, we're going to continue in the book of Matthew chapter 21, we're talking about hangry, protesting, and a sign of spiritual health. And I'm looking forward to just getting into this text and uh, really just, just, just getting into it today. And so, um, last week I was supposed to teach on this passage of scripture. And uh, Pastor Jordan Michelski and Jerry Michelski ended up stepping in uh, late for us and ended up talking about their trip to Ukraine and sharing really what I could tell is a very timely word for our church about what God's been doing in their lives, did in their hearts in the trip and what he's saying to them now. And so uh, if you didn't catch that, make sure to go to the podcast and take a look. But a quick update from my life. Um, I was on track to teach the life lesson last week when all of a sudden a little precious life wanted to see the world. And so I'm happy to announce that last Sunday at 11.31 p.m., Jovi Grace Elena McClellan made her entrance into the world. And there she is. So, that is Jovi on the screen. And I think she has more hair than Zara, although I don't want to start uh, fights in the house from when they were babies. So, But mom and baby are doing good. Uh, thank you for your prayers, uh, just your words of support and encouragement throughout all of this. Uh, we are so blessed to be a part of this soul family. And I uh, thank you for that. And so this morning, we are going to get back into the book of Matthew. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jordan Michelski spoke on the early portion in Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus had cleared the temple and overturned the money changers, and really made a scene there that day. He was really making a point when he started to flip the tables and, uh, you know, driving people out. Uh, a lot was happening in that passage. It was a bold, it was an intense moment where Jesus made a strong point about what the temple had become. And so Jesus, Pastor Jordan said this, is for our transformation and against our sin. And so as we continue looking in this chapter, it's not going to get any easier, unfortunately. Uh, this has been one of those studies this past uh, couple of weeks now where there's been some repentance involved. There's been some heart check involved. There's been some looking inwardly happening. And so clearly, Jesus is calling the religious leaders out in a real sense. He's protesting about what had become of the temple. And he's doing this because the temple had become something that it was never intended to be. It was now a culture that was becoming very dysfunctional. And we have all, unfortunately, probably likely seen examples of this in our world where we have seen cultures that began with a purpose, that began with something in mind, and all of a sudden became dysfunctional in the process. And often what we do when we see this happen is we begin to protest, we begin to speak out, we begin to, you know, look for change. Uh, this past week I watched a documentary on Netflix for a few moments called Dirty Money. And in that documentary, it tells the story of Volkswagen, who at the time... Uh, early on in the story, we're getting more and more concerned about the pollution and the environment. And it tells the story of the company Volkswagen who claimed to have clean diesel vehicles. Vehicles which were above and beyond the rest of the pack for environmental safety and emissions output. And later, this, this whole thing became known as emission gate or diesel gate, right? When, it, when the news came out that the data found that they were actually misrepresenting what they'd claimed to have been doing. 
they were misrepresenting their testing. And their claims were found to be more than false. And so after this all came out and exploded, they kind of lost some favor with the public. Their CEO ended up stepping down and resigning. And ultimately, and unfortunately, it kind of serves as an example of a group that kind of got away from its core mission, that kind of got away from its purpose, that kind of got away from something they were doing that was supposed to be good for the environment, good for people. And it ended up going bad, not only hurting themselves by missing the point, but it also began to hurt their customers and the rest of us. And so you see, when a group of people becomes, when a group becomes so dysfunctional that it's actually deviating from its original mission, intent, and purposes, and is now actually hurting people, then protest is in order. And that's what Jesus is doing at the temple. He's beginning to protest the system. He's beginning to protest what it has become. When the temple of God becomes so dysfunctional, when it becomes so far from its original intent that people are no longer able to seek God within it, then some type of protest is in order. And Jesus was doing that in this passage of scripture. You see, Jesus needed to call out a culture that was broken. That not only drifted from its mission, but really was now causing harm to the way of God. Not only did they get away from seeking God, but they were keeping other people from doing it. And Jesus often saved his harshest words for the religious teachers and leaders of his day. You see, there's something about drift, I think, that could happen in our lives. The thing about drift is that you hardly ever notice it when it begins to happen. You may start out with good motives. You may start off something, you know, with, with, with the right intentions. But drift happens slowly. It happens one decision at a time, a neglectful moment at a time. Suddenly, you find yourself in a place and you wonder, how did you ever get there? Drift is confusing because it's not something that was a part of your original plan. In fact, it may be the opposite. But over time, things have been left unattended. And before you know it, you're in a place that you never intended to be. And that's what we're finding ourselves in in this story as we pick it up in Matthew 21 today. Pastor and author Craig Gashel wrote a book years ago called The Christian Atheist. The subtitle was Believing in God but Living as If He Doesn't Exist. It was a tough read. But he talks about how it's easy to drift from your life purpose. He even talks about his experience as being a pastor. He talks about how early in his ministry he was constantly doing, he was constantly giving away to others that he didn't take time to foster his own relationship with God. And he says in the book, and quote, I was a full-time pastor and a quarter-time follower of Christ. I was a full-time pastor and a quarter-time follower of Christ. This is how drift can happen in our lives if we're not careful. And he talks about how in the midst of doing, how in the midst of serving, all good things, that we can still lose our way. We can still lose our purpose. And we can begin to make life about things that are other than God and his purpose and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you this morning, Lord, that we could look into your word. I pray, God, that you would teach us something, Lord, that you would bring us closer to you. That, Lord, this would be a time of self-examination, Lord. Help us to love what you love. Help us to care about what you care for. And Jesus, would you speak to us, Lord? Keep us from my opinion and give us your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. So why does Jesus make this protest in the temple and with the fig tree, as we're about to read about? You see, the temple was supposed to be a gift from God to the people. King Solomon acknowledges in his prayers, even early on, that no building, no temple, no matter how great, 
can actually ever, you know, contain the greatness and immensity of God. That's how big God is. And the temple was supposed to be a place where people could seek God, meet with God, but it, it had become something that now that it was never intended to be. It had become something for certain elite people, for people who were specially privileged in this case. And Jesus, in his words, when he, when he overturns the tables, when he overturns the money changers, he says that the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for who? For all people and for all nations. And when Jesus overturns the tables, he cites Isaiah's words about the house being a house of prayer for all nations. And he quotes Jeremiah's words that it is now turned into a den of robbers. And why is Jesus enacting God's judgment in this way in Jerusalem, in the temple? He's doing this because the temple had become something it wasn't meant to be. It had become an exclusive place. What was intended for all nations was now just for a group of the spiritual elite, if you could say it like that. And they were making sure to keep other people at a distance. And they were keeping them from seeking God. And they were keeping them from God's original and purpose for the temple. And so Jesus drives them out and quotes from the prophets. And the scripture says that the blind and lame afterwards were coming up to him for prayer. People who would have originally been barred from the temple because of their physical ailments that were noticeable. And what Jesus is symbolically saying is that even if you're broken, even if you're blind, even if you're unwealthy, God still welcomes you into his presence. God still welcomes you into his presence. You are invited to the house, the house of the living God. It's to be a place of prayer for all nations. And it's also meant to be a place of welcome for all nations. And so Jesus, forcefully and leaving no doubt, he lets his protest be known. And then we keep reading in the, pas in, in, in the passage, which brings us to our text today. In Matthew chapter 21. And it says this. It says, early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree had withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. And it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And so the first thing we must keep in mind when we read this portion is that the, this part of the chapter is really in unison with, with what had just happened in the temple previously to it. They kind of work together. It's not just some random event, but he's making a point here. We can't divorce this action of Jesus from what he had just done previously the day before. They're connected and they make sense together. And so Jesus' protest wasn't dri driven by Jesus having a bad day or by being extremely stressed but he quotes scripture as he does it. And we are given an illustration of spiritual condition through what we see in his encounter with the fig tree. And as the scripture says, that Jesus was on his way to the city and he was hungry. Now it's interesting that they include that, isn't it? That they note that he was hungry. He was on his way and he was hungry. Have any of you ever been real hungry before? Anyone? Right? You've been so hungry and you were looking forward to getting home because you had something in the fridge. I'm touching a nerve now. I know it. 
and you were going to get home, and you had something waiting for you in the fridge, and you were just excited to go home and eat, only to get home and realize someone else had taken it, and someone else is enjoying what was supposed to be your good meal. And of course, we all respond with, well, bless them. Isn't that, you know, I hope they enjoy that food, right? I hope they love that. <laughs> Maybe, right? Maybe. You see, some of us, when we get hungry, are a little prone to act out, aren't we? Anyone ever heard the word hangry? Anyone know what I'm talking about when I say the word hangry? Anyone hangry right now? Okay, don't raise your hand, okay? All of a sudden, it got quiet in here. I think some of us missed breakfast. I know I did, so. But hanger is caused by a lack of food. It is hunger that is causing a negative change in your emotional state. In fact, Merriam-Webster Dictionary actually defines it like this. Irritable or angry because of hunger with its first use actually dating back to 1918. So this has been something that's been around for a while. We're just kind of bringing it back now. But how many of us have spouses who sometimes get a bit hangry? Anyone? Yeah, don't raise your hand. Oh, oh I got one over here. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, you're in trouble, Rick. You're going to have to have that chat after, eh? Don't raise your hands for that. Gee, I didn't mean to set you up like that. You see, my experience with my daughter, Zara, is like this. It goes from happy and joyful and things are great to I notice I'm hungry and I could see her demeanor is starting to change a little bit. And then, you know, after that, it goes from, well, you know, my hunger is not immediately satisfied. And I could tell now she's opening cupboards she shouldn't be opening. She's bringing bags of food to me, right? And the next step after that is just absolute devastation, isn't it, right? It is screaming, it is crying, and then it's absolutely over until she eats something. And we all know what that feels like. We all know what it feels like to be hangry. We all know what it feels like to be hungry. And this is only for kids, right? As adults, we just don't deal with this, right? We don't have a problem with that whatsoever. But this is a portion in the Bible where Jesus is accused of being a little hangry. This is a passage that has actually been used to attack Jesus on a scholarly level. Some accuse him of looking irrational here or of overreacting in this case. And so what do we make of it? Well, the first job or thing that we must do when we read stories like this, is the best thing to do is just to start getting curious and to start asking questions and start writing down questions that you have. Start writing down things that stand out to you in the story. Um, what, what are some things that uh, interest you about this? And there are about 20 questions that I came up when reading this. And so we're going to walk through those this morning. No, no, I'm just kidding. We're not actually going to go through them all, okay? But we'll look at a couple. Why did Jesus inspect the temple just before this event? Why was Jesus hungry? Why the focus of a fig tree? Why is Jesus surprised that there was no fruit on this tree when it might not even been seasoned for fruit to be grown? What's going on here? You see, as he was leaving Bethany and going back to Jerusalem on his journey, he sees a tree with no fruit on it. Understanding this will be helpful here, that the fig tree really is a symbol of the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel's spiritual health. That's what the fig tree is representing in this story. It's representing the spiritual health of a nation. And the vast majority of times in scripture, when a fig tree is mentioned, it's portrayed as the sign of wealth. And if things are going well, then people are sitting under their fig tree, just enjoying its splendor, just enjoying 
life. In Hosea chapter 9 and verse 10, it says it like this. Um, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. And so this is a nice account. This is a good account. A picture of Israel committed to God in covenant was like grapes, was like fresh fruit on the fig tree, the writer says. This was a good picture of the spiritual health of that nation. However, there are a few places in the Old Testament that also mention where the lack of fruit on a fig tree means that something just isn't right. Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, prophet over the coming devastation and destruction of Israel, in, in chapter 8 in Jeremiah, he says this. He says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree. And their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. And so Jeremiah connects the destruction of the temple with a barren fig tree. That's how he describes it. What's more interesting is that Jeremiah 8.13 is still read in the Jewish tradition once a year in alignment with the day of mourning of the destruction of the first temple. And so to this day, they still actually revisit this text every single year when they remember the destruction of the first temple. And so this line of thinking is still quite current in the culture. In Micah chapter 7 and verses 1 to 2, we read this. What misery is mine. I am like the one who gathers summer fruit and the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land, and no upright person remains. And so we see from the old covenant that a tree with no figs is not a positive thing. It's not a good thing. It's not the way it was meant to be. Now, we need to understand a couple of minor things about the fig tree to fully appreciate what's happening here. First of all, the fruit shows up on a fig tree before the leaves ever do. I'll repeat that. The fruit shows up on a fig tree before the leaves ever do. Jesus showed up to a tree that had leaves on it, but had no fruit. And here we see that growth without fruit is actually a sign of decay. If you've got something that looks like it's growing, but there's no actual fruit to go with it, then something has decayed on the inside. And it isn't working the way it's supposed to be. It isn't growing how it's supposed to grow. Something is wrong with it. And so this tree, it looks like it's alive, but Jesus comes along and pronounces what's really true, and that is that all we see is just leaves, but there's nothing growing here. And so I think sometimes we could, we could stop in a portion like this and we can ask ourselves the question, we could turn this inwardly, and we can ask ourselves, where do we ever notice our own decay in our own lives? What do you notice, where do you notice the places that if someone were to look at you from far, far away, they may say to themselves, wow, this person is living for God, but if they get up very close to you, they notice that there's something decaying in you, that something on the inside is not lining up with what they see on the outside. You see, this was a protest that Jesus had against the lifestyle of the religious teachers of his day. What you were seeing outwardly was not at all what was happening inwardly. And so Jesus approaches this tree and he finds only leaves and no figs, no fruit. If leaves are on the tree, then there should be baby figs appearing as well. 
The figs are edible. They're not as, you know, uh, sweet as ripe figs, but fruit you could still snack on. If the first leaves appear and there's no baby figs, then you know that this is a sign that you will have no harvest that year. This is a sign that the inside of the fig tree is decaying. And Jesus approaches a tree with leaves, but no signs of fruit. And something's wrong with this tree, and he curses it. And he says, may you never bear fruit again. And what he is doing in this action is highly symbolic to what biblical scholars call an acted parable. Not a spoken parable. And there's a difference between the two. A spoken parable would be like uh, the parable of the prodigal son. He tells a story, and we learn a lesson through it. Uh, The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the talents, those are spoken parables. But one that is seen in actions and not just words is what biblical scholars call an acted parable. And that's what we see happening here, you see? Jesus also did acted parables. Some examples were he opened up the eyes of the blind man. So that, yes, the person would see physically, but also to show others that as a Messiah, he came to open the eyes even of the spiritually blind. An acted parable was when Jesus walked on water, not simply so that he could, you know, show off, but to demonstrate that with God, nothing is impossible. Those are examples of acted parables. Are you seeing where we're going here? And as he curses this fig tree, this is an acted parable. This is very symbolic what he's doing here. As he curses the fig tree, he's saying and declaring that the people of Israel, and in particular, as their life has been expressed through the temple, and of course the example of their teachers, he declares that they have failed to bear the fruit of God's character. They failed to bear the fruit of God's character. His experience in the temple is bookended with this parable of the fig tree. It's highly symbolic. It's an active parable. And this is where we start to understand what Jesus is saying here. I think what Jesus is getting at is that when our spiritual life and religion that we say we live or follow, when that is hollow, when it looks like we have growth on the outside, but inwardly nothing is really going on in our hearts, then this story tells us that our life of faith is also decaying. N.T. Wright says it like this. He says, what Jesus is doing in the temple is cognate with what he is doing to the fig tree. He has come seeking fruit and finding none. He is announcing the temple's doom. The fig tree action is therefore an acted parable of an acted parable. You see, the religious teachers had turned the temple into something it was never intended to be. And with the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus is saying the same thing and making the same point. He's saying that there's no hope in this temple. There's no hope in what's happening here. And this would have been huge. This would have been so tough for them to grasp. This would have sounded like blasphemy. This would have sounded like, maybe you feel uncomfortable me even saying that. But Jesus is announcing that the temple and sacrificial system were dead because there's no life. There's no pulse in it. And as Jesus inspects the temple, as Jesus inspects its leaders, he finds there's no life there. And the scary conclusion, the scary thing about this conclusion is that it's possible to appear to have passion and yet not have a pulse. It's possible to say all the right things, but not have a pulse. To do all the right things, but not have a pulse spiritually. To think we are growing, but not have a pulse. Like a doctor, Jesus was inspecting the temple system, and even more directly, those who were leading it. 
to see if there was any pulse of a sign of life. And in the end, he found no fruit. And he found no life there. And the figs were dead. And just because you see some leaves, it doesn't mean that there's life there. And so what's the takeaway for us in this portion, in this little passage? Well, I'll tell you what it's not first. The takeaway from this portion is not to head down to Safeway today, okay? And all of a sudden look through, you know, the, the produce section and see that they don't have your favorite pears, okay? And then all of a sudden get a little annoyed by that. And then you go to the clerk angry and you go to the clerk upset and you say, don't you have Andrew pears? I wanted Andrew pears this morning. And when they say they don't, you point to them and say, may you never sell Andrew pears again. Okay, that's not the takeaway from this passage of scripture, okay? Not what Jesus is asking us to do. The application is not to cuss out workers at Safeway, okay? If that's a struggle, in a few minutes I'm going to show you some ways in which we can even get past that, okay? But stay with me. But the point of this is for us practically is very similar in that we are like trees, and Jesus is asking us, where's the fruit in your life? Where's the fruit in my life? You see, this is where the study got convicting over the last couple of weeks. You see, the temple was about to be done away with. And rather than having to go to a temple to connect with God, there was going to be this whole new idea introduced. A new truth was being introduced. And it was a total paradigm shift for the people. And that paradigm shift is that we are now the temples. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said it like this, or do you know, not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. And so think about how amazing that is. We used to have to enter into God's presence, into a building, but now in Christ, he's entered into us. And according to Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, we are now also temples of God. Christ lives in you. You no longer have to go somewhere. You no longer have to go out there somewhere to find God. But Jesus and the New Testament writers claim that he resided within his followers. And Jesus is asking us, where is the fruit in your life? Where is the fruit in our lives? And this talk about producing fruit was something that we heard about before in this Gospel of Matthew. This wasn't some new, brand new idea that came to surface in chapter 21 here, but we heard about this earlier, so let's keep reading in 21. Matthew 21. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Valid questions. Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism... Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? And they discussed it among themselves. And they said, if we say from heaven, well, he's going to ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And so this is the portion right after, and you're kind of scratching your head wondering, where are we going here? He just cursed the fig tree, right? Told the disciples with faith, with prayer, they can do whatever they need to do. And now the chief priests and elders are definitely bothered and upset at him. And they ask Jesus, by what authority are you doing this? What gives you the right to come in and enter and clear the temple? And Jesus, instead of answering their question, asks them a question about John's baptism and whether it had come from heaven or from man. And it seems like a strange angle for Jesus to take here. 
he's being asked a question about what authority he has, and he responds back by asking about what the source of the baptism that John bring was from. But Jesus is not merely sidestepping or avoiding their question here, but we have to flash back to the beginning of this gospel in Matthew to chapter 3, and we see why Jesus asks about John's baptism and why he props up John's ministry. In, John, in, in chapter 3 of Matthew, John is baptizing and he's calling the people to repentance. And he sees the Pharisees coming towards him. This is the teachers of the law, the people who would be in charge of the temple. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the, at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so Jesus masterfully brings up John the Baptist at this point, and he does this on purpose. Because John was teaching and John was warning these religious teachers of the exact same thing earlier that Jesus is speaking of now. And John didn't approve of the way of the Pharisees and the way the religious teachers lived. And neither did Jesus. And this was all coming to a confrontation here. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees felt they were a part of God's inner circle. They felt that they were God's inner people. And so they felt that put them here and that put everyone else down below them. And far below and they were God's teachers. They were God's spiritual elite. And what does the Bible say about them? Well, the Bible says that they wouldn't even lift a finger to help anyone but themselves. But they actually put up big burdens and heavy loads on people's shoulders to carry. But they did nothing to help. Nothing to be a neighbor. They looked down on others. They were confident in their own righteousness. They thought they were very spiritual and everyone else was very unspiritual. And we know that in the matter of salvation, that the only way to please the God the Father is to really plead the Son, right? But not only did they look down on others, but they were actually preventing others from entering into a true life and relationship with God. And their toxic example was causing much harm. And there was this appearance, this deception that they were following God and doing the right things. But a closer look into their lives revealed they had no pulse. They had no fruit. They had missed the mark, and it was time to protest this. It was time to call this out. That repentance is not only a matter of words or associations. We can't claim association or allegiance to God simply by who we are, our status, our family name, our standing in the temple. But that repentance is always marked by producing fruit. In verse 8, he said it like this. John said it like this. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And not only must we produce fruit, but John states and Jesus affirms that there's no longer any room to start claiming that Abraham's your father and living by an association of someone close to God. But that God's looking for a people who love him and will produce the fruit of his kingdom. And so practically for us today, we can apply this to our lives in the sense of how have we perhaps sometimes also held our titles or our history too close than maybe we should. Maybe you've grown up in the church and church is all you've known. Maybe you have a title in the church and this is a warning to those who are called pastor. 
Maybe your family has a rich heritage and history of serving in the church. The question is, where are you at personally today? And the warning is this, is that it's not enough to live off of someone else's intimacy with God, but you need to have your own intimacy with God. It's not enough to live off of someone else's relationship with God, but you must have your own. It's not enough to simply identify with God, like the the religious teachers were doing, but all of us need a relationship with God. And that's lived out in our actions. That's lived out in our daily decisions that we make. And I think there are times in life where we all go through struggles, where we all go through tough times, and we need to just step back and evaluate and do a gut check. Sometimes, you know, when we go through a tough time, we say to God that we're having a tough time, we're having a tough time believing in him. We ask God for a sign, give me a sign. Have you ever been there? Anyone ever asked for this before besides me? And that's fine. But in the same vein... What if Jesus also may say to us, give me a sign that you really know me. Give me a sign. And the sign in the gospel message appears to be fruit. Where's the fruit in our lives? Is it good fruit? Is it bad fruit? Jesus said it like this when giving an example of him being the vine and the father being the gardener in John chapter 15. He said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is our source, friends. Jesus is our help. We could try all we want to produce fruit, but we're not going to do it apart from him. Fruit doesn't just sit there on a tree and start trying to grow itself. It happens naturally through a process. A process of pruning, a process of the right elements. How do we become more fruitful and bear more fruit of of, of Jesus Christ in our lives? Well, Jesus talks about, in John 15, talks about the Father's pruning of the branches that bear fruit. The art of eliminating that which is causing harm or or, or delaying growth or overall heart of the plant. And for us, practically, this happens by eliminating things in our lives that steal and occupy our attention. And in turn, would crowd out the voice of God in our lives. And so we eliminate lesser things so that we have more space for the right things, for God, and more space to hear his voice, and more space to follow him, and more space for relationship with him. The truth is, is that our fruitfulness is impossible apart from Christ. But attached to him, it is expected. I'll repeat that. Apart from God, we could actually bear no fruit. But when attached to him, fruitfulness is expected. And the branches that produce fruit are pruned so that they produce even more fruit and that they remain healthy. Read about it in John chapter 15. Write that down. Go back to that later. It's a beautiful passage. But in which way do we need to maybe eliminate things to make more room for Christ and his voice and his presence and his leading and following through and doing life with him? I use this illustration on Ash Wednesday, so if I was there, you're going to hear it again. But I like talking about music from time to time. Johnny Cash. Any fans? By the early 90s, Johnny, legendary singer Johnny Cash had been all but forgotten by the music industries. In some ways, he really had burnt his bridges. In a music world that was going completely electric guitar, Johnny still wanted to hold on to his acoustic guitar. 
His options were limited and no record label was willing to invest or even touch his music at the time. And this bothered a famous music producer named Rick Rubin. He caught wind of this and this bothered him. One of the more prominent producers in the music world, famous for producing many number one albums by prominent artists and bands, Rubin had a suggestion that him and Johnny get together, set up a microphone, and he asked that Johnny would play his guitar and would sing whatever songs he wanted to. Just a man, his guitar, and his microphone. And to take away the drums, and to take away the bass, and to take away the keys, and to strip away everything that was there before. Ruben was wanting to peel back the layers, eliminate the need for drums, bass, and percussion, and see what they would find in these studio sessions. After doing this for a while, Rick Rubin suggested that Johnny Cash play a solo show, acoustic show, at a famous venue known as the Viper Room in Los Angeles. Just him, his guitar, his voice, all alone on the stage without his band to back him up like they'd done so many times over the years. And what was, what was surprising to Rick was Johnny's reaction to this request. Ruben recalls in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine saying, I remember that Johnny was terrified before going on stage. This was a guy who did at times 200 shows a year for 40 plus years of his musical life. He was famous for playing in prisons, famous for playing on television, but the idea of going up by himself with a guitar singing songs without his band absolutely terrified him, Ruben said. I remember watching him, how nervous he was through the first song. You could hear a pin drop. It was like dead silence. And yet in the difficulty of that moment, anyone who's followed Johnny Cash's career, he found a new career through these last five albums that him and Ruben did together. And Rick Rubin went on to produce those five albums of these recordings, and they sold great, and they put him back on the map, and they put him back in popular culture before his death. But what Rick Rubin did in these sessions was he simply stripped away all the other instruments, all the other musicians, the staging and the trappings that Johnny Cash had learned to rely on over the years. And in the process, he discovered a voice that had been there all along. Rubin later reflected on this and saying, this is the art of elimination. You see, great artists know that it isn't just what you add, but sometimes the most important work is knowing what to take away. Removing the clutter, removing the excess, all the superfluous elements, and finding out in the process what's been there the whole time. It would be like someone doing a wood carving. I saw a show on wood carving not too long ago on TV, and I stopped and kind of tuned in for a second. And what started off as a piece of wood is all of a sudden transformed, and the layers are peeled away and removed. And as the wood is sculpted, what was once an ordinary piece of wood is now transformed and is turned into something beautiful by the peeling away, by the elimination. You see, in the same way, Jesus is the vine. The Father is the gardener, and we are the branches, as John 15 teaches us. And connected to the vine, and with the Father's pruning, the Father's peeling away of things in our lives, we can produce much fruit. And the beauty of God can be revealed in the way we live, in the way we treat each other, in the way we, we handle things in this world. But apart from Jesus, he says that we can do nothing. And so Christ must be our focus. It's not about striving. It's not about mustering up your best strength and trying to produce fruit and trying to make things happen on your own and relying on your own talent and relying on what you bring to the table. But we rely on him. 
And apart from him, we can do so much, but apart from him, sorry, with him, we can do so much, but apart from him, we can do nothing. And so the hard question then is this, how is the fruit of Jesus' character being seen in the tree of your life today? If you are often angry, are you becoming less reactive? If you're impatient often, are you growing in patience? If you're insecure, are you becoming more confident in Christ? If you're proud, are you actually finding ways to make yourself more humble or becoming more humble? If you tend to associate only with people just like you, are you becoming truly more inclusive? Are you being changed? Is the fruit of Christ's character born in the tree of your life today? You see, we become more like Jesus when we invite him into our lives to live his will through us, for we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And according to the book of Hebrews, the, bull, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't really atone for anyone's sins. And therefore, priests would offer sacrifices every year. But Jesus on the cross atoned for our sins once and for all, making the temple obsolete. Just as Jesus predicted in 80, 70 AD, the temple was actually destroyed then. When Jesus became a human being, he didn't just come for one people, but he came for all people. And he shed his blood for this world. And when he died, he made a way for us to live with him, him and us, us in him. And the cross has two beams. So one's vertical that connects us up to God in prayer and worship. But there's also a horizontal slant to the cross that symbolizes how Jesus Christ also connects us to one another. And enables us to embrace people who are very different than ourselves. In Christ we can be made new people. New in our relationship with God and new in our relationships with each other. And so how is the state of the tree of your life? What kind of fruit do you sense you're bearing today? Very quickly, and I'm going to do this very quickly. Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable at the end here. And he says to them, what do you think? There was this man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But, you know, later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he didn't go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. And Jesus said to them, speaking to the religious leaders, Truly I tell you that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you didn't repent and believe him. And so very quickly, one son represents the religious teachers and the leaders who have always claimed to have said yes to God in his call. And yet they completely missed the point. And they missed his heart and they misrepresented his character and they didn't follow him at all the way they were supposed to. But the other son represents the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners of the world who had originally said no to the ways of God in order to follow their own way. But later, through John's message, they were baptized, and they repented, and they believed, and they began to do the will of God with their lives. You see, faith is not simply a matter of words or association, but it's also a call to action. It's a matter of action. Craig Rochelle, in his book, The Christian Atheist, says, Who do we believe in more, ourselves or God? Our actions and decisions will reflect that. And so I'm going to end this morning by leaving us with just a time of examination. I want you to take this with you this week. 
What is Jesus calling you to do? Has there been any way in which maybe you've said to God, yes, and yet by your life you are clearly not living by your yes? That's a tough question to ask. Have you perhaps said no to God, but in this moment you're recognizing his grace, you're recognizing his love, and you want to say yes to him? What is Jesus calling you to do? You see, when we begin to follow Christ, he's not simply inviting us into a moment, but he's inviting us into a movement. And that's his movement. And it's something that happens daily. Our faith is never simply identified by one decision, but it's the daily decision to live for God every single day that flows from that initial decision. And Jesus is looking for a people who will bear fruit, but we're not going to do it on our own. And you're not going to muster up the strength to do it. You know how you'll do it? You'll do it by staying connected to him. Staying connected to the vine. And as the father prunes us, and as we live in that relationship, fruit won't be forced. Fruit will just naturally happen. And so how is the state of the tree of your life? What kind of fruit are you bearing? And if you sense you're being called to bear fruit, more, fruit, more of the fruit of the character of Christ, more love, more joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, invite Jesus to help you today. Invite Jesus to help you this morning. And maybe eliminate those things that distract you. Eliminate those things that keep you from that place of being connected to him. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray, God, that as we look through this passage, Lord, I pray that you would just bring each one of us to a time of self-examination. God, that we would look honestly at our lives today. And Lord, we want to love what you love. We want to care about what you care about. Lord, we want to stay connected to you. And out of that, Lord, may we be fruitful so that men and women would come to see you, would come to know you, would come to experience your love as well. And so, Father, wherever we're at today, Lord God, as we look at the tree of our lives, are we seeing fruit? Lord, would you lead us in that? Would you guide us in that? Help us to examine our hearts and lives today as we bring them before you. But more than anything, Lord, may we be connected to you today. May we be connected to you this week. Be our help today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as you go about your week, do not go in your own power. Do not go in your own strength, but go connected to him. Attached to the vine. Because apart from him, we can't do anything. But attached to him, we can do a lot. Amen? Please stand. I'm going to leave you with a blessing this morning. In the ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands. And those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. And so here it is. Take it from 2 Corinthians 13 today. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As you walk and leave this place connected to Jesus the vine and bearing fruit for his glory. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Be encouraged, be challenged. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.